Well, good evening, everyone. I am here today with uh, two of my friends, Danny and Donna. I am so happy to have them here with me in the advocacy arena, and uh, they are joining me today, and I am looking forward uh, to talking to them and for um, you to get to know them and hear from them. We are going to be talking about um, ad advocacy and activism in the area of ed education, and uh, in particular, uh, student advocacy for students. And uh, I would like both Danny and Donna um, to kind of introduce themselves uh, by answering this question for me. And um, Donna, I'm going to ask you to go first, if you will. Okay. Um, when uh, or how did you get involved in student education uh, and education advocacy? Was there any particular event um, that um, sparked um, that um, motivation um, for you? Well, being that it's a bunch of educators in my family, and I kind of stumbled into it uh, with my daughter. Uh, she was in the kindergarten and first grade, it was a blessing that she had the same teacher. And she started to notice the, the changes from kindergarten to first grade. And she was noticing things. She, she didn't say anything right off because she noticed she had been through a real traumatic experience with the loss of her baby sister. And she noticed that, okay, she did very well in the kindergarten, but first grade, she started noticing a change or you know, her not concentrating. So she came to me and she said, well, I'm going to watch her just to make sure. And you watch and see if you notice any differences. So we watched and we watched and we was like, okay, it's getting worse. It's not getting better. So she said, well, I'm going to advise that she be retained. And I was like, excuse me? <laughs> she was like, no, right. no, 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 no. She was like, no, 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 no. <clears throat> So she said, I'm going to walk you through this process and how it goes. And she said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to recommend that she be retained in the first grade, but you are going to fight it and I will help you fight it. She said, but this is the way that we can hurry up and get her tested. She said, I think she may have a learning disability but I can't be positive without her being tested. Okay. And that was the beginning of the journey. <laughs> All right. So very interesting. And Danny, could you answer that question for me? Sure. Um, I became, I guess, um, I guess my journey started when um, my son got to start school. Uh, my son has what is called a dual diagnosis. Uh, he was born profoundly deaf. Um, we, I found out the day after he was born because he did not pass his newborn screening test. So, up until so right when he was a newborn, up until about three years old, I kind of knew that he was going to have some challenges when it comes to his education. So, for those first three years, you know, he had 
physical therapy, speech therapy, occupational therapy. And the speech therapist did kind of help me, you know, to understand uh, there are programs that uh, children uh, like my son could start a little bit early. And it's actually a way, it's a, it's a way, it's a, um, it, they're proactively trying to get the child to make sure that they don't fall behind. So they start them a little bit earlier. And so he started at three years old in a DHH program. Uh, DHH stands for Deaf and Hard of Hearing Program. And that started my journey on trying to be an advocate for my son. Um, he did have what we call a cochlear implant that was implanted in his right ear. Um, my son's deafness was so profound, or in some words, you could say so bad that hearing aids did not work for him. And so even by three years old, he was still um, not talking. He said no true words. He just made sounds. Um, so when we started um, elementary school at three, like a preschool setting, um, but it was done at the elementary school. Um, that's really what started it. And, you know, I got to understand that, you know, he was entitled to certain services in the classroom, like the FM system. Um, he, obviously the class sizes are going to be smaller. They do total communication is when I started to become familiar with some of the terms when it came to his deafness. And so that's what really started it. And then as he got older, I started to notice certain behaviors from him. Um, you know, he would line up his toys. Sometimes it would be by color. Other times it would be by size. Uh, there were other times where he would just kind of stop what he was doing and just kind of look out of the corner of his eyes to nothing that was there really, um, but he would just stop. Or sometimes he would start flapping his arms. And so I brought that, um, my concerns to all the therapists that had been working with him and particularly his occupational therapist because they tend to also work with children that's on the spectrum for autism. Mm -hmm. And I was always told, Dominic, no, that's my son's name. No, he just has deafness. You're no, no. Whatever you're seeing, that's not autism. It's just not. Okay. Um, <laughs> Dominic struggled when he was in school for a really long time, even through his deafness. And it was because it was his behavior that was becoming an issue. And um, I think he might've been around seven or eight years old before I finally said, okay, enough is enough. Um, I've gone through the IEP appointments. Those are brutal. IEP stands for Individualized uh, Education Plan. Um, they can, they really do, um, they take apart your child piece by piece by piece. Um, what does your child, how do they respond socially? How do they respond uh, when it comes to different subjects? Um, they really just take apart your child and it can be really hard to sit if you're not used to it or if you're not prepared for that kind of meeting. And after a few of those meetings, I finally went back to the University of Miami uh, School of Miller, uh, Miller. And I said, okay, something's going on here. And they finally evaluated him. And it took, I think, about almost a month or so of tests and evaluation for them finally to deny 
to diagnose him with autism. And so that's where the dual diagnosis comes from. Um, I immediately took my findings to his school and the school board on their own um, decided that it was best to keep him in a DHH setting. Um, The reasoning or the rationale behind that was, well, if you give him language and he will communicate, then that should stop the behavior. The issue with that is these teachers, they went to school to learn how to work with deaf children, not how to work with children that's on the spectrum. So you are now asking them (laughs) to do this heavy lifting that they never really signed up for. And it turned out to be disastrous because they didn't know how you address the autism. That's not what they were learning. That's not what they're used to. And so it was a huge struggle. His behavior became a really big problem. You know, after you walked out of that meeting, um, how did you feel? What did you do? You knew you couldn't get up, give up. So what did you do? Um, I went in the car and I cried. <laughs> I mean, I was angry. Um, you know, I, I said my piece. Um, I was able to keep it all together. And I was telling myself, just get to the car get to the car, then you can have your cry. Mm -hmm. And I had picked him up. I I literally, I was like, you don't want him here. He don't got to be here. So I, you know, I signed him out the very last time. And, you know, they gave me everything in his book bag that was in his desk. And we went home like 1130 (laughs) (laughs) AM. And I went home to my mom. And then that Monday, um, I went to the new school and he was supposed to start that day. And I said, can we at least do a tour? Let him see the whole grounds. This is where he's going to be for now. So I just can't throw him in there blindly, right? So you you literally have to think four or five steps ahead. Mm -hmm. I just can't, you know, I just can't throw him in there and expect him to understand what's going on. And, you know, leaving um, his classmates, even if they were there for a month. Mm -hmm. So he's literally going in by himself. And so, um, they were very understanding and they said, sure. And he, we, we saw everything. We, we met his teachers, the art class, um, the live area, the media center, um, the gym, the cafeteria, we went everywhere. So it wouldn't just be so brand new to him the next day. Mm-hmm. It was um, really about like two weeks in, my mom and I were like, okay, they're going to call us, right? The school is going to call us saying that he needs to be picked up because of his behavior, mm-hmm. because it's what we're used to. And then all of a sudden to um, not have the phone call and the teacher tell me every time I would drop him off, he's fine. He's doing okay. And I was not used to that. And I'm like, <laughs> serious? Finally. <laughs> Yeah, and the anticipation, you know, and then yeah. the relief. Yeah. And the biggest takeaway that I got from that was here I am asking these questions where I can send my child to. And it was just a difference of a zip code in an affluent neighborhood. And he had access to resources. He had access to help. And I think that was the biggest difference that I understood. I was always asking the question of where I could send my child. Mm-hmm. And 
our neighborhood, no one knew the answer. And I think it's really important because sometimes when you are in need of help, you don't know what you don't know. Right. You don't know that there is help on the other side. There is there is somebody that is willing that has your answers. And sometimes it comes down to being in the right zip code mm -hmm. because those resources that help was not in my neighborhood. And we don't even live in a bad neighborhood. Right. <laughs> it's just quiet working class neighborhood. Mm -hmm. The affluent neighborhood had mm -hmm. everything. Right. And, and it does bother me because when I think about it, my son got to access that at fifth grade. Where would he have been in his education if he had accessed it in kindergarten? Oh, my. So, yeah. so many children that could be like my son that was just denied that access because they just wasn't born in the right zip code. And that, I think, is a biggest indictment on the education, especially public education in this country. And that leads me actually to my next question for, for both of you, sure. because um, I wanted to, you know, ask you, and you can continue with this, Danny, on, mm -hmm. you know, because of your experience, um, how, it, how it's changed it or affected your thoughts about your local education system or our public education, center, uh, education system at large in this country. One of the first things you figure out is that you have to learn how to be an advocate for your child. Even if the word advocate doesn't cross your mind, okay, I just have to fight for my child. Mm -hmm. um, one, you become protective. You know, these are a group of strangers. Granted, they have some experience with your child, but they have experience with other children. They're mm -hmm. taking their experience and their education to now judge or to observe what your child is doing and that can be a hard pill to swallow for me it was and I had to kind of learn how to get out of that um, those first IEP meetings were brutal like no I sat there and I cried I'm like I don't get what you're telling me I don't see this behavior at home mm -hmm. and eventually I learned to no I'm gonna have to fight them just as hard so I would go in with pen to paper I would have my questions asked already or written down and then I would be sure to ask them questions mm -hmm. and it's not to place the onus on them but to also hold them accountable I had to figure out how to do it because nobody tells you there is no handbook for this right so I had to learn how to do it and I still do it now I cry before the meeting and then I get all worked up I'm like okay you got this I give myself a pep talk mm-hmm you know what it's going to be like. We're going to find, we're, they're going to tell you all of his areas of concerns, right? Mm -hmm. And then they're going to, and then we're going to come up with a game plan. And then in, in six months or when your next IEP, usually towards the end of the school year, and that child, your child has not, you know, um, met all the goals, find out why. Ask them why. What happened? Don't just don't just take their word for it. I know that kind of sounds a little harsh, but also hold them accountable. If this method is not working, let's try something different because now we're just wasting time. Right. If you think that, so if he's not at 80% by April, is he at 60% or is he still at 20%? And 
And if he's still at 20%, this method is not working. What is the next thing that we need to be doing? Mm -hmm. And again, it's okay to be a bulldog because somebody needs to be in the room fighting for your child. And you know your child better than they do. And that is your biggest weapon. That should be the motivation. If you need to cry, cry. If you need to scream, scream. As a parent, you also have the right to have other people who know your child, who is intimate with your child, who knows um, your child's mannerisms. They have a right to be in that room with you. So you don't feel like you're alone in that. And I also learned how to do that too. And um, last thing, um, start looking um, into parent advocates. Sometimes it's just something that is um, provided by the school board free of charge. Again, I did not know this when my son was in kindergarten, second grade, third grade, or fourth grade. I finally found out about fifth grade that there was a thing called parent advocate and they advocate for you. They help you fill out forms. Um, if you need to, at school choice, it could be a double-edged sword. Um, but also see if that's a possibility for you. It is not the end of the road because somebody is telling you that your child cannot learn. And unfortunately, a lot of our Black boys and girls are told that, my son included. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you don't agree with something in the IEP, when my son's behavior becoming an issue they used to throw out the word aggressive. Mm. And that's what used to make me cry. And mm. you don't get to do that because now you're you're painting a picture of my eight-year-old, of my seven-year-old, of my 12-year-old. You're you so quick to do that. Oh my goodness. I, I yeah. have my own stories around that, how you know behavior is one of the first things um, that they want to, you know, comment on, but not really offer any help for. And, you know, my feeling was always um, them using it as a way to not deal with your child, to not help them overcome whatever issue it is. It's an easy way to dismiss them. And I feel like put a lot of people into, you know, the the school to prison pipeline system. Yep. Um, yep. All right. Well, um, we are uh, coming up um, to our break here. So if you want to wrap that up, we're going to come back in a moment and pick up where we left off with this. And last thing I'll simply say is um, there is a community. Um, if you don't find one, you can. there's nothing stopping you from making your own community. I guarantee you there are other parents that are struggling for answers just as well. Absolutely. Um, this is when you want to get involved. You want to ask the teachers, the guidance counselor, the ESC specialist, um, but also start asking in the community. If you need to maybe address it with the teachers union, why aren't there better resources for our area? Why do we need to travel so far? Mm-hmm. What can be done to address these issues? Do we need to have legislation written into law so that it, it makes sure that our children are not forgotten about and they don't fall through the cracks. And for me, it was again, that one teacher that they recognized that my son did not belong there, but she started asking questions. The same questions I was asking, but eventually she got the answer. And she said, this just might work out for him. And it did. Mm -hmm. And for that, I'm forever grateful. Also, we should start advocating for 
teachers that look like us. If you go and you look at a lot of the ESC classes, there is a shortage of teachers, but there's a shortage of black teachers. There's a shortage of black male teachers. There is a shortage of black male teachers that go into special education. Mm. And the biggest reason is because there's really no money in it. Right. And oftentimes when they do start off in uh, special education, eventually they go the administration route. They'll Mm -hmm. usually go for guidance counselor or a principal or assistant principal. They don't stay. And 40% of black boys are in specialized education. And so you have these white majority white teachers writing on a school record that little black boys, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 are aggressive. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they're hearing that. It's not just something that they write on the paper. These children are also internalizing it too. Right. And that cannot be a good thing ever. No, so because they're not- internalizing this entire process. But to add that um, exactly to that, um, you know, the neurodivergent issue that they're having to overcome, the challenge that they have to to navigate. Now they're having to deal with someone labeling their character because of this. Um, and I, I'm so grateful that you, you know, got um, the resources that. Dominic needed um, and that you had a teacher, like you said, um, she didn't know, but she cared enough to try to find out and probably had a little bit more access um, to find those resources, because I think you said something very important. Um, We don't know what we don't know. And I I think there are many resources out there. So again, so grateful to you and Donna coming and sharing your stories so that we can bring awareness and hopefully um, discover, you know, other resources um, for people um, who may be dealing with this, you know, with their own children or family members or whatever. And like I said, I it, it's a personal issue for me. And, and that was one of the things that I found was, you know, a like of resources. But I did have a minister at the time who was also, you know, a psychologist and had worked with children actually in your state, um, in in the Florida state school system. So he was the advocate that I was able to take with me um, once I got, you know, um, my daughter uh, to be tested. Because like I said, we started, I started recognizing problems in the first grade, but I had to wait all the way until the fourth grade to actually get her tested again. But, you know, I was having to work every year to continue to, do, um, you know, uh, to continue to advocate for her because they tested her in the second grade um, and it was, you know, like inconclusive. And they said sometimes they are when they're that young, but she was still having problems. So I did at least advocate and push for her to have a teacher that I felt was uh, empathetic and willing to partner with me to help her. And this happened to be a teacher who looked like me. Um, and I knew her family. They they were a family of educators. And, you know, so the second grade was a better experience for her. But, you know, we still continued. And like I said, I had to wait until the fourth grade to to have her diagnosed. And even having her diagnosed was me 
pushing because the teacher was, again, highlighting the behavior issues, but I knew they were coming from somewhere. And um, one of the things that the uh, guidance counselor told me when I pushed and we eventually got her tested and discovered, yes, she indeed does have dyslexia. And she told me one of the best things my daughter had going for her was me as an advocate. So um, I just want to thank you and Donna for being the great advocates that you are. And we're going to take a break and we're going to pick back up and we're going to find out, um, uh, get a little bit more uh, from uh, Donna on, you know, her thoughts about the education system. And we'll get you back in into the conversation as well, Danny. So, all right, we're going to take a break and we'll be back. All right. So we are back with Donna and Danny, and uh, Danny has um, shared her journey um, advocating for her son uh, with us. And I would like to go to Donna and see um, what her thoughts are um, about, you know, her local edu your local education system and public education in general. How has your work, um, you know, affected your thoughts about this? Well. A lot of things have changed in the school system since I've had, well, uh, mine is a little bit different because most of the people that I had to advocate for mm -hmm. are grown. Okay. And they're living productive lives and, you know, have gone on to do good, I mean, good things. Mm -hmm. The school system now, it's a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Because I notice now they rely more on testing. It's not more in person. Mm -hmm. And I find that to be very, very detrimental to, to the kids. Mm -hmm. And the pandemic has made it worse. Right. I have a grandson now who's in pre-K. Mm -hmm. And during the pandemic, I mean, there was no option for him. Because most of theirs is done by in school or in person learning. Mm -hmm. But between me, my daughter, my mom, we had other resources that we stayed working with him even during the pandemic. But I'm worried about the kids who didn't have those type of resources. I can relate to that because my little granddaughter started kindergarten. She started school in the pandemic. She started kindergarten virtually. And, you know, as a consequence, you know, she's now in the second grade and, and she's struggling a little bit. So, um, again, I find myself, you know, advocating um, and, and trying to supplement what I feel is not being given, you know, in, within, you know, her, her school setting. Yeah, I agree with everything you said, but as grandparents, parents, advocates or whatever you call yourself. We're going to have to, I mean, if, if the school system can't figure it out, we're going to have to figure it out. Absolutely. And, you know, okay, um, I'm trying to figure out what resources can we offer these kids, mm -hmm. even if they're not personally connected to us. Mm -hmm. That's the next part of my advocacy. How do we get to them? How right. do we reach out? And I agree. And I think that's going to take some real, I mean, real strategizing. Mm -hmm. Which is part of what we're doing. And I hope in this conversation here, like I said, you know, raising some awareness and part of the reason that I 
got you and Danny together is because, I mean, I feel like in a sense, you're already doing that because I know that you are helping Danny, you know, to, to navigate, you know, her situation, which is very current for her right now. And um, I, I am so proud of you both and, you know, what you're doing in that regard. So Danny, um, how has your, um, you know, activism, do you feel evolved um, since, you know, the beginning of your journey with, with your son? Right. So now, instead of just the meeting, <laughs> um, by having an IEP meeting with his teachers, guidance counselor, um, ESC specialist, um, now I'm seeing that um, my advocacy is going straight to the state house. Um, uh, recently, about two years ago, um, the state legislatures in the state of Florida um, passed a law that if a child that's in the ESE or a specialized education setting, uh, classroom setting, if they pass a cognitive test, if they reach a certain score, that means that the school district now can remove them from their specialized uh, education environment and put them in a general classroom um, without the safety net that they had before. And my son falls into that category. Um, he uh, took a test earlier this year, uh, a cognitive test. He scored really well on that test. And now um, the district is literally just following the state law where they would remove my son from his classroom and into a general education classroom. And I'm sorry, I do not trust teenagers right now. <laughs> And to remove him, I think it would be regression. It will take him back. Um, it could bring back more behavior issues, right? Finally, he is a sophomore in high school and he is in an environment where he feels comfortable enough to learn. That has been scarce in his education journey. Um, right. There has been years on top of years on top of years where he was not learning because his behavior became so much of an issue where I did have to leave work and pick that him was up. the focus and and now he's in a position the classroom setting the teachers have all decided that this is what works for him this is a method that we can get the best out of him and now with this law they want to remove him from that classroom setting and put him in something in a completely different environment. A teacher who does not have that much experience or education when it comes to special needs children that meets or understands my son's exceptionalities and the pitfalls <laughs> that could happen even just with that um, is a lot. And so right now, actively, Mama Donna um, and I, we are looking into all the ways that we can bring awareness to this issue, um, how we can better advocate for my son. I did already uh, meet with my uh, state representative, uh, my congresswoman. Um, I met with an aide in her office earlier this week. Um, it does right. not stop there. We're going to continue. Um, they've advised me that they're also going to re reach out to my state senator and my state house rep. Um, 
We're also looking into possibly contacting radio stations, uh, newspapers, um, if we can get something from the teachers union, because this directly affects them in the classroom as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. And so um, also, if you can get your child, if your child is under, you know, medical care or psychological care, my son is, you know, there's no shame in that. If they are on board right. or will to write letters, get involved, you know, tap into the resources, even if you don't, even if it's just family, if it's to the church, it's the you community. Who knows every, your every resource that is available and, and, and none of them can be underestimated or, you know, considered like, well, that's, you know, no, like you said, family ministers, <laughs> you know, anyone in your community. And the teachers, the school itself, is backing my decision. And <laughs> it's so funny because last two, three years is all about in the state of Florida, parental rights when it comes to CRT. You know, mm -hmm. a parent should have the right to decide what the their, their child is being taught. Well, here I am, let me exercise my parental right. You don't get to remove him from a classroom. He's comfortable now, he's learning. Mm -hmm. That is a hard task right. with his exceptionalities. The teachers, the school have created an environment where he feels comfortable. His guard is down where he can trust his environment and just learn. That is really hard. And I do not want that disrupted, not even for state law, because wow. you clearly did not take into account children like my son. He can't be the only one. Right. And there's more that we can advocate for because these are the most marginalized and most vulnerable communities who are unfortunately in many cases already being overlooked or taken for granted. And we cannot let that continue. Absolutely. And I think even, you know, years ago, because, you know, my daughter is grown when I was advocating for her as, you know, when I was advocating for my mom and grandmother um, for, you know, their health care. I always think about like, I, as you said, you know, they're not anomalies. They're not the only one. Um, but, you know, like I'm there for them. I'm advocating for them. And I think about people in those systems who have no one to advocate for them. You know, some parents, they don't know. They don't know that they have a right um, to, you know, question and to, uh, really make demands uh, because we, you know, pay our taxes. And as you said, um, we have a push now of organizations, not for, you know, all the right reasons, pushing parental rights. And we do have rights and we have a right to have our children in systems that um, are supportive of their learning. And um, so I uh, want to see if Donna, uh, if you want to chime in here, um, uh, on what you and Danny um, are planning, um, what you want to kind of see happen in this arena. And we, like I said, hopefully this won't be our last conversation because I think that there is so much work to do around this. And of course, like Donna and I have grown children um, that we have advocated for. And so we know that this, this problem, this issue is still going on, um, you know, and there's still not a real great support system, you know, in place for it. Mm, no, it's not. But as grandparents now, 
-hmm. We still have another generation that we're still going to have to fight for. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was saying as far as trying to find avenues, resources, and ways to try to fight for them, especially since, like I said, because of the pandemic. Our kids have lost so much because Mm -hmm. of this pandemic. Right. And I'm scared that are we going to be able to help them make up what they've lost? Mm-hmm. And, and it is going to be up fear. to us. Mm-hmm. That is my biggest fear. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, No, that's okay. You know, me, like I say, me and Danny, you know, we're working through the state of Florida, but we were also looking at maybe having some spaces and bring in some teachers and Maybe some people who, you know, are on the school board or whatever in their state. Mm-hmm. And maybe between all of us, we can come together and make up a plan that we can go through all the states with mm-hmm. to help marginalize people or, or students who are not getting the resources and the help that they need. That sounds like a wonderful plan. I mean, and, and I see that as kind of a, a grassroots initiative that can be started in a community, say your community there in Florida, but that can certainly be replicated to be taken to other communities, you know, and um, like um, you well, said. if you think about it, Dee, that's what the Republicans are doing with these laws they're doing. Exactly. That was that was the next thing out of my, that's what I was going to say, because essentially that is how they have, um, they are mounting their assault on our public education system. So, you know, there is certainly an active one in place now. So it makes our fight for, um, you know, advocating for our children who may be you know, um, suffering in some way or challenged in some way, it makes it even more critical because even without, you know, children who don't have any of these types of challenges are still having to navigate very different and in some cases very dangerous, um, you know, um, environments. You know, we we have a, a gun violence law um, that has taken place across this country, you know, not law, but, you know, just, you know, a, crises. And unfortunately, our schools are being, you know, targeted um, for a lot of these things. And so, you know, they have to contend with that. It's a lot. But at the same time, our children are counting on us, you know, whether they're our biological um, family or, or not. Our children are our future. So it does, you know, uh, require us to do whatever we can to ensure that their future is as bright as as it possibly can be. Um, And again, like I said, I I want to encourage you and Danny um, to continue your efforts to um, keep me aware of any other um, activities and things that you are working on so that I can help to amplify those efforts and support them, be involved in them if possible, but it is going to take all of us um, to um, find remedies for these situations, um, you know, in our, you know, that we find ourselves in currently. Um, Danny, is there anything that you would like to add that you, you know, around, you know, things that you uh, think would be needful as far as improving things and you know your your future plans um, around this. 
Yes. Um, something I would literally just came to my head too. As we're talking about this, um, we all have an advantage in that we speak English. Mm. What about the parents who English is not their first language and they don't know how to navigate it? Mm-hmm. Um, when I think about, I mean, it's a little bit of but it does require that we address it um, head on as well when it comes to gun violence, mm-hmm. when it comes to um, what does it look like? One of my son's uh, classmates uses a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. What does it mean when there's an active shooter drill? How are they supposed to run? How are they supposed to also get to safety? Mm-hmm. Um, we need to provide better for our children, regardless of what kind of education you think they are entitled to. Um, They need to be safe. They need to be heard. Um, We need to really look at the conditions of our classrooms, the conditions of the teachers, um, and how we're teaching them. Um, Your child, there was nothing wrong with her. She was dyslexic. That means that her brain operates differently, just slightly different, Mm -hmm. where a little bit of adjustment was all that she needed and she was able to soar. It took somebody who cared enough about your child and it took you as an advocate, as her mother, to say, we're not going to give up on this child. This child is worth saving. And unfortunately, too many children are, it's not my issue. It's not my problem. I don't get paid enough for this. Mm-hmm. And they try to go through the school system with no one really advocating for them. Those are the cases that slip through. Those are the, uh, the children, unfortunately, were written off. Yeah. There's nothing that we can do. And we need to do better because there's no reason in these United States, while we still have a public free education system that children should also be taught but we need to look at standardized testing um the law that passed in florida that applies to my son now that i'm currently trying to fight it takes nothing into account about his exceptionalities they literally base it on test scores Mm -hmm. what about the children who are straight a's Mm -hmm. student but they fail or they have a hard time when it comes to tests tests Mm -hmm freaks them out they do not perform well mm-hmm. to just base it on this one criteria you are making that child making that parent making that teacher think something else is wrong and right. maybe the system is wrong and so i'm not for blowing everything up but i am for we can do this better mm-hmm. we can provide a safer environment for our children to learn and we can provide a a better situation where children aren't being left behind and they aren't just pushed through to be somebody else's issue and somebody else's problem. Cause that's, that's what we don't want. That's what we're not, we're not advocating for that. Absolutely. But if people and smaller classroom sizes. So obviously the teachers are not being stressed out as well. Right. There's a reason why there's a shortage. What's well, the root cause of that? <laughs> yeah, and, and there are multiple ones, but certainly the pandemic put um, um, undue added pressure uh, on mm-hmm. you know, a problem that we already had because um, they um, were actively 
denying science and also, you know, um, attacking school board meetings and, and, and teachers. And, and they actually, that they made them feel unsafe, which you already have, you know, the gun violence thing. So I feel like that caused a huge drain on our education system. And a lot of teachers left. And, and we talked about that. And we have um, one more um, uh, break that's coming up. And, and I want to kind of end with, you know, kind of talking about, um, you know, some of these issues that are proliferating in our education system in general, you know, um, that, you know, we often talk about, but, you know, I want to add it into this conversation. So if you will um, give us a moment, we're going to take a break and we're going to come back with Danny and Donna uh, to uh, finish up this really, really important conversation that I'm so grateful um, that they were willing to participate in and share today. So we'll be right back, folks. All right. So Danny, you know, and, and Donna, I have um, enjoyed uh, being able to talk to you guys about a subject that's certainly near and dear to my heart. And it, it uh, warms my heart um, to know that there are other people um, who uh, can relate to what I experience personally and who are working actively to uh, try to improve this situation. And, you know, we have been bantering back and forth about some, you know, different ideas and things um, that we can do to continue to, you know, raise um, awareness and, and um, you know, maybe bring some solutions to this. But it was one of the things that before we left off in our last little segment, Danny, you were talking about uh, an issue which we all know that we're facing in this country with gun violence and how that affects our education system and certainly our kids' ability to learn and to learn in a safe environment. And I, I want you to speak to a, a little bit about, you know, that current situation and how it affects kids who are already, if we didn't have those things going on, are already facing challenges. Um, and Danny, I, I want to start off with you and Donna, you can chime in, you know, whenever you like and where you like. Absolutely. So as it stands right now, my son is a sophomore in high school. And since he's been in high school, I if my number is correct, we've had four incidents where his school has been put on lockdown. And every time my heart is in the pit of my stomach, um, usually it will start off with a email and then a phone call from the school. And it's usually an automated um, message that the school has been put on lockdown for a cold red situation. Um, you are told as a parent or as the guardian of that child that's in that school um, not to go directly to the school mm -hmm. because clearly there's a threat there. You don't want to go where the threat is, but they'll usually advise you to go to the reunification center um, and they'll let you know what that center is um, um, so that you can then be reunited with your child um, once the lockdown is over with. So once the police, once everyone, uh, law enforcement, uh, ATF, all come out, assess the situation, and then you get to be reunited with your child. Um, part of the reason why that scares me a lot is because my son is deaf. 
he is nonverbal autistic. He wouldn't be able to hear um, one if there's gun violence, if there's gunshots going off. He relies a lot on what is surrounding him. So a lot of what he sees um, cues from his teachers and the other students. Um, it also uh, bothers me a lot because <laughs> just because my son is deaf and nonverbal does not mean he's a quiet child. <laughs> um, he does a lot of noises. He does a lot of vocalizing, a lot of stemming all day. So in the event that he should need to be quiet, that is not realistic for him or children like him. And would that tip off a gunman? if you're trying to hide. A lot of these situations, um, a lot of these questions um, are always at the forefront of my mind. And um, this is what living, or this is what um, having children in the public school system is like. Right, and as a parent, I, that has to be just terrifying. I mean, like I said, again, without any of those things, but knowing all those things and the other things, existing at the same time has to be very difficult yeah it's scary and you usually don't have a, a, a sigh of relief until you know um the even the reunification center i've obviously not gonna uh, mention too much about it but even that is guarded too because then you have to speak with a security guard or a police officer through a walkie-talkie i am the parent or the guardian of this individual and they radio in to that teacher do you have this student and then another police officer or security guard will walk your child back to where you are like this is what it's like at least I mean, for the fact that we have like these terms and these procedures now that we yeah. have to have them is scary and um the 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 one that happened last year when he was a freshman I was already in the carpool line and all of a sudden, and I still had the video because I, I started recording it um, mm -hmm. of, and it was because they went on lockdown on this particular situation because a student had bought a gun on the campus mm -hmm. and it was right before dismissal. And what went through my head was Parkland mm -hmm. because I'm not going to mention, mention the shooter's name because we don't want to um, give him any more notoriety. Um, but he deliberately waited towards the end of the school day where he knew the kids were going to be released. And that is when he decided he wanted to start shooting. Right. And like they were open target, just, you know, exactly like in a barrel. That's so sick. And so there I was <laughs> sitting in the carpool line and all of a sudden these police officers, they're just coming down the street with their sirens, uh, not blaring, but the lights just flashing. And they, they just start multiplying and multiplying. And then you see the guns come out. And then you see squat comes out. And the long guns come out. And they're just going through each classroom door. You, it, um, there's no reason. I've done it the first few times. And I realized why, obviously, it would not work. But I started calling the front office. By then, once the, the classroom or the school has been put on lockdown, you can call the school as much as you want nobody's picking up you're going to get an automated message you know um 
school hours, visitation, what you need to bring, identification, uh, that kind of thing. But it goes on lockdown. So you can't even call into the school. There will be nobody picking up. And for safety reasons, obviously. Um, then you have to worry about, okay, is it even an idea for me to text my son? Because he does have a cell phone that he can communicate through text. Is that going to, did he remember to put it on silent? <laughs> you know, um, should I be texting him? You can try to call the teacher. But again, these are, these are all the things that you now have to worry about just for your child to get an education in this country. Because people value guns more than they value the lives of our children, it seems like. Uh, Danny, I would add that this to what you're saying. I think the reason why we have these issues is because it's a free, quote unquote, free education, which is not free. Our tax dollars pay for this. Yeah. So it's not free. Yeah. And okay, so it's supposed to be a free education. But do you have these type of issues at private schools? Do you right. have these at Catholic schools? Mm -hmm. So this is what I'm saying when I say I'm thinking about how do we take the current situation and flip it? Yeah. Do we have to go back to community schools where, I mean, hey, I know they talk about uh, integration, this and this and that, but sometimes we might have to think about us and our kids. Do we yeah. need to have our own community schools yeah. where we try to, you know, maybe lobby to get money for grants for these kids to come to this school where it's not a strain on the parent to have to try to pay for it? This is what I'm saying when I'm talking about different ideas, because that's a traumatic experience, not for the parent as much as it is for the child. It absolutely is. And I think it's important that that we look at, you know, like all those possibilities. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like for, you know, for a short period of time, you know, Danny and I talked about this. I, I tried homeschooling. It, it was difficult. It didn't work well. I mean, but it did what it needed to do at that moment because I felt it was more important um, to protect, you know, my child's um, self-esteem, which I thought was being damaged in the public education system until we could figure out something else. And um, like you said, uh, I think we've spoken about this before as well. Um, I am a segregation baby. So I grew up, you know, as one of the, you know, first recipients of, of this right that so many people fought um, and died, some died for for us to be able to be integrated because we were fighting for equality at, you know, at that time we felt um, uh, access. And I think now more we, we understand it's not just equality, but it's equity um, mm -hmm. because we, we talked about how, yes, we were admitted into those school systems where they had the great textbooks and resources and those things. But what didn't happen, like in my particular community, the the integration was um, parsed over, it was incremental. It, even though the law was there, wasn't fully implemented. And, and I started kindergarten, um, one of only um, three black students in that school. It wasn't until I got into the ninth grade that our school system was fully integrated. And what I also noticed and remember 
uh, was that I didn't have or see my first black teacher until, I mean, I knew they existed, obviously, because we had still the black schools and the white school, and many of the black teachers were members of my church. Um, but I didn't have a black teacher until I was in the third grade. Um, he, he was a male. And um, so I didn't have that many. And, and we talked about how, yes, we now we still have, we have, we're in the school now but we don't have a lot of people who look like us or who care about us like you know some of the other teachers who look like us and and from our communities uh, may have um, been able to nurture us and and have that level of understanding so um i i hear you know what you're saying on that and and i see how that affects us and i don't i don't know that there's any one answer um, but we do need, you know, like some solutions and, and, and homeschooling or, or community schools um, could be one of those answers. I mean, for me personally, I feel like in some way that they're kind of trying to drive and push that anyway, um, because yeah. they do want to destroy the public education system. So I feel some kind of way about that. I, I don't want that to be done. But at the same time, I don't want those that I love in a system that's not serving them well, and in fact, could actually be harming, them, causing them to be harmed or put in danger. So yeah, where do we go? You have to remember too, is even though the law was signed and, and was supposed to be implemented, this, how to say, it was a dual, okay, we're gonna implement it, but at the same time, we're gonna tear it down. And they have been doing that since, since segregation and integration started. Yeah, correct. I mean, oh, you know, this is no surprise because I mean, I figure if you building up something and actively tearing it down at the same time, it's going to be a damn disaster. Yeah. Yeah, because they really didn't want us there to begin no. with. Yeah. And that and that's where we are. Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm saying. We have to come up with some ideas. I mean, and I'm not just saying black, I mean, just all black school. No, but we're going to have to figure out, okay, the the other ethnic groups that want the same thing that we want and are willing yeah, to help right. us, then yes. Like I'm neighborhood schools, because I live in a very diverse neighborhood. There are, you know, people from all ethnicities and, you know, backgrounds. So I, I feel that community schools, like I said, not a matter of black and white, but schools where you know the people in your community um are from your community you know the with equity and equality mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and we have um, those teachers who are familiar with our community and the people who come from our community hopefully so they can relate because i feel like at least even before segregation uh before integration i feel like we got access to those things, but what we didn't get, what I don't think that they could foresee or realize at the time is that um, we lost the nurturing of our black teachers, of our community teachers, because I mean, believe it or not, there were white teachers in the black school. Yeah. <laughs> you know, some of them chose to teach there. Yeah. And, um, it was a different type of nurturing. And I feel that's because the people understood uh, they knew 
the people in the community and they understood the issues in the community. And I feel like today, um, in many ways, we don't like people just they they want to um, just dismiss kids, um, especially if they are not fitting into all their norms and boxes or whatever. And, and certainly if they cause them any you know, problem or whatever, because, you know, they only have them for a year and, and they can move along. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Something else, too, that I wanted to mention, uh, two things. One of them is, um, and it kind of goes into uh, being a segregation baby and then having going to integration. You know, I hesitate to, has it, um, to critique <laughs> what the civil rights leaders did during the civil rights movement. Um, but I kind of really wish they would push for more teachers in the classroom with the Rudy Bridges, with the Little Rock Nine, um, who were some of the first to integrate certain schools because they're not just having to go into a hostile environment just outside the school, right? Think of those pictures that we've all seen. Yes, they're in black and white, but picture all of the white women, white mothers, other students, faculty, who feel like that mob outside. And so these kids were put in a position where they still had to learn. You still had to be better than them. And who was going to be outside of the home, but in the school setting that was going to protect them or be their safe place? And I think that was unfortunately a missed opportunity. Um, that'll probably be the last time I ever critique anything that the civil rights movement has done. Uh, but something else to take into consideration as well. Um, a lot of the children that are in ESD classes are being taught by white teachers and no shade to them, but some of those teachers are only there because they can get X amount of dollars off their student loans if they Bingo. work X amount of years in a, you know, a problem neighborhood, <laughs> right? Um, and they're coming in with their views. They're coming in with their uh, biases. And it plays out, unfortunately, in how they interact with our kids. And it's never to the benefit of our community or to the children. Um, and last but not least, and I think in many ways, as parents, especially, you always want the best for your child. And unfortunately, not all, that's not, it's not always the case, but sometimes we do want to push our child to go to maybe a PWI. And as you've seen, there are children that look like us, our babies, our black and white babies, our mixed babies, our Asian babies, our Latino babies. Um, when they go into these PWIs, the microaggressions that are still there. And it's like, I understand that you want to make sure that your child has the best education, but what are you doing to them mentally? What are you doing to their self-esteem with those microaggressions? I've heard Danny, some- I'm sorry, what, what's the P PWI? Predominantly white institutions okay. or school. Okay. Mm -hmm. And what is that doing for their self-esteem having to deal with those microaggressions? Mm -hmm. And some parents I've heard argue, well, it's just going to prepare them for the real world. And there is some truth to that, but even in school, shouldn't your child also be safe? 
shouldn't that also be a safe environment outside of the home where they should not have to deal with that? And I think it's something that we can, that needs to be addressed because if we are about community building, I think that that is something that we can look at as something like community schooling, having the teachers live in the community. We often argue that police officers or law enforcement should live in the community that they are going to police. Teachers should start maybe living in the neighborhoods of where they're teaching their students. And I think that's, you know, like something certainly that could um, lead to improvements because, you know, like you said, I, I feel like part of the success of um, educators in when I was growing up, you know, again, this was, you know, pre-integration, but I think that aspect of being part of the community, understanding yeah. the plight, you know, the concerns um, of the community, you, you relate differently because mm -hmm. you know you talked about how um one teacher wanted to label your son as aggressive yeah and i'm sure to her it was just a word yeah but as a black as the mother of a black son yep you knew how harmful that mm. label could be for him yeah yeah mm -hmm. So um, I, um, like I said, I take that critique. I mean, we can always look at things. I mean, we, we got what we got and, and I, I'm thankful for that, but um, I feel that every generation is required to do the work of perfecting their, their community and, and our democracy. And, yeah. you know, I feel that um, as much as, you know, our ability to have um, access to, um, you know, vote free and fair elections, um, you know, education is part of that democracy contract for us as well, you know, yeah. and be, and partly because I know that uh, there is such a, uh, an assault on our education system. And I, I don't think it's ever a good thing when you're trying to diminish uh, the access or alleviate the access of education um, of, to children and or, or people in general because I know that one of the main ways that fascism is able to rise is um, by um, having a, a large group of people and citizens who are, are not informed, um, who are basically fed um, certain narratives that allow them to be, you know, shaped in, in a way that leads to fascism and, and they don't even know that's the road they're being taken down. Um, and I feel like that, that's kind of what's happening here in our country. I don't know how you guys feel about it, but um, this assault on our education, um, certainly like Donna said, it scares me because mm -hmm. um, I, I feel we're, we're entering dark times. And I mean, it's not like our education system was perfect. Um, before this active assault began, just as our democracy has not been perfect, but we, it, there's always been, I feel like the room and the pliability in it to improve it. But now I feel like people are actively trying to destroy both of those things and to take us backwards. Absolutely. And I think that's the scariest thing because it's one thing to have a fringe group 
have these ideologies about what our education system to look like. But it's no longer a fringe group, right? The monsters have been released and the monsters are in our government and they are making policies and it's affecting everyone. It's one thing if they're just in their basement talking. It's one thing if they're on, you know, an internet group chat and it's just them. Well, no, now those numbers are growing and they're not stopping at the red states, quote unquote, red states. Right. Give it to election cycles. Your state might not be so blue. Mm-hmm. And that's how it spreads, right? Mm-hmm. And, it, and it, it always starts off small. Oh, we just want to do this one thing. We just want to give parents more rights on right. what their child is learning. Who is going to argue against that? Right. And then uh, it's like... But Danny, my whole thing is, they say parents, but they're not talking about all parents. No, they're not, they're not including us. That, <laughs> that's the key. Mm-hmm. Whenever yeah. they say something, you can't take it for what they say. Yeah. You have to investigate it and dig down. Okay, this is a cold word. Right. Uh, and and it's not for D, it, what you were saying and Danny about how they talk about aggressive and or it's not just boys, it's girls, girls too. too. Yeah. Oh, oh, absolutely. And, you know, I shared with you guys before in spaces and conversations that we had, like here, like I said, uh, you know, our um, just our children in general, um, there was a story that happened locally here, not too far from me, and I'm in Tennessee, that made national news where uh, children, um, one the age of my granddaughter now, uh, one eight-year-old girl, she stands out in my mind partly because of my granddaughter, but it was several kids, I can't remember exactly how many, but in that age range. And um, they were arrested. They they had police officers, not SRO officers, but I remember that. police I remember officers that. in uniforms with guns go into these classrooms and take these kids out. For what? They weren't misbehaving in the classroom, but because they had watched a fight not instigated, not been in it, but watched a fight. And one of those um, students, like I said, I never forget, it was a little eight-year-old girl. And she was so terrified and traumatized. She peed herself right there when the officer, and I can't remember, but he may have handcuffed her, but just, just taken her out. And then they put them in detention centers. Now, of course, um, since then, of course, those parents filed a lawsuit and they won. But um, the person who decided to do this was a judge, a judge who was elected, a judge who was elected multiple times, but had never actually had um, any experience on the bench. In fact, wow. I think she had to take her exam uh, multiple times. And, and right after she took her, her law exams, she went right to, you know, um, campaigning for this judgeship. And she has been there for decades. And there are other awful stories about what she does to kids, um, putting them in detention centers and out and out, um, actually, di- t- you know, disregarding the rules and the laws around them being there. Because even when they're there, there are certain rules and laws about how long they can be there 
and, and what those facilities need to be like. And she exceeded the length of time on many of those kids simply because maybe they had interaction with someone there in the detention center and it was um, not respectful in their view. And she basically said, well, you're not being respectful. You can stay here longer. I mean, just, you know, my goodness, you know, disregard for the law because how she felt what they said. And so again, you know, we talk about what does this do to kids? And it yeah. frightens me in states like mine where we ha have um, the second, one of the second largest private prisons in the country headquarters here. And, in, and the headquarters is, you know, a neighboring county from where this situation occurred. And we have a proliferation of detention centers being built here, you know? And um, so those kinds of things, those labels, um, this uh, kind of um, ease of which they're ready to toss kids aside. Again, I say it speaks to me about this school to prison pipeline because it feeds that industry and it, it has no regard or care or concern for the education part. It's like, you know, it's like mm -hmm. some of them, they already expect to make profit off of by putting them in prison. So guys, it has been a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Um, I could go on all day with you guys about this because I think it's something that we all care so passionately about. And I am glad, as I said, to have found like-minded individuals to talk to about people who are actually doing things, um, who are trying to uh, do more things to bring some solutions and remedies to these issues. So I wanna thank um, both of you ladies for the time you have spent with me um, today for the work uh, that you're doing and that you are continuing to do in this effort and give you both um, a, a last opportunity to share some closing thoughts with us before we close out. Uh, so I'm going to go with Donna first and then Danny. As far as, you know, the discussion goes, I mean, it's not going to end today. It's going to keep going because we're don't, we don't have any solutions. And until we can get solutions that are beneficial to our kids, then it's going to be an ongoing conversation. And I'm here for that conversation. Okay. Well, thank you for being here. And I know that you're doing more than just talking. So I thank you for that. And Danny? Yes. Um, I think the word advocacy or being an advocate can scare some people. Am I doing enough to hold that title? And I would say the first step is just caring enough about your child to want to speak up. And as long as you speak up, then you are an advocate you are literally a voice, a fighter for your child and other children. And that's never a bad thing. And get into it. Get comfortable asking questions. Get comfortable recording people. Get comfortable putting pen to paper. What are you hearing? How did that make you feel? How do you want this changed? And then start asking questions and ask everybody. You would be amazed at the information people are willing to give you. Because sometimes, and I'll go back to what I said before, you don't know what you don't know. That's okay. That's the starting point. Mm -hmm. But it should not be the period. It should not be where you end. And so if you're scared, reach out to the community. 
start sitting in some of the conversations. A lot of the school board meetings are open to the public. Mm-hmm. Meet with your local officials. Meet with your mayor. If you can't help me, who's the person that I go to that can help me? You start asking that enough, somebody is going to <laughs> know that answer. And again, you're going to be scared more than likely. If you're like me, your heart starts to pound, your palms get sweaty, you got to calm your nerves. Okay, you can do this. Okay, ask them one question. Now ask them another one. And then you think about the person that you're fighting for. It could be your grandchild. It could be your child. It could be your cousin. It could just be the com- the children in the community. You see a need and you know that this should be better. And so in many ways, we can all be an advocate. Find your lane and go for and just go for it. Go for it. That is great Do advice. And I, I want to thank you for that. I want to thank both of you because like I said, I, 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 you know, you're right. Maybe that word might frighten some people, but I just see it basically as caring. And there are a lot of things and issues that I care about and some of that I care so deeply about that I am moved to act. And I yeah. think most of us are moved when it, it, it involves people that um, we care about. And um, so I want to, again, just um, continue to encourage you ladies to keep advocating for your children, for the children in your community, um, and for, you know, the children in our country who um, may be needing this. And I think that we can all um, be examples uh, for others, um, encourage um, other people, and keep talking, having conversations, and um, finding solutions. Like I said, I don't know that there's any one solution. It doesn't necessarily have to be, but we have to do something. And the fact that you ladies are gives me hope. So I want to thank you today for joining me in the advocacy arena and for all the work that you are doing around advocating for children in the education system.